I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, Ben. Hi, Agnes. How are things? Good. How are you? I'm good. I feel I've got mixed emotions because we're approaching the end of our first series. Our first season. True. The first season of Undercurrents. Which has been quite a long season. It has been a lengthy season. <laughs> when did we start? In the mists of time, some way back. February? Uh, February. February, I think. So, yeah, and, and they've not worked out how to turn off our microphones. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Either so, they've not worked out how to or they, we're just not big enough to, <laughs> to be a problem. Right. Come on, we're doing all right. We're doing all right. So how many episodes have we got left? We've only got one more episode after this one. <gasps> what? And then that's it for our but Christmas break. That's it for 2018. Yeah. We're just having a bit of a break. Yeah, you know, we're not. This is not the end. We'll never be finished. I mean, but yeah, we just wanted to foreshadow that because in two weeks' time we'll have our sort of season finale. And are you feeling yeah. Christmassy yet, Ben? I'm not feeling remotely festive. No, not not even. It's too not early. Even slightly, not even a bit. Despite the fact that all over central London the Christmas lights are already out. Yep, Christmas it's trees Black Friday, are up. Whatever that means, soon. Yeah. And uh, is that Christmas related? No, that's Thanksgiving related. Ben. Is it? Okay. So it's the day after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving this year? I don't do Thanksgiving. You don't do it. I don't give thanks. And turkeys are... You're going to have to beat this out. <laughs> <laughs> right, anyway, Ben, who did you Sorry. speak to this week? Well, it's a great episode this week because we were joined by Cherry, who is the new China Research Fellow at Chatham House in the Asia-Pacific Programme. And she has come from LSE to enlighten us on chinese economic and foreign policy and she's great and she was recently interviewed by evan davis on radio bbc radio 4 about halloumi and she and i was, think that tells you all you need to know i think that's the best interview topic of the year and she will be writing a piece for the world today upcoming world today on, oh, halloumi. Really? on yep. halloumi on on the demand for halloumi and the sort of in china the demand for halloumi in china and how it's affecting halloumi exports Globally. In Europe itself, or even globally. Yeah, let's say globally. Let's let's hype up the, yeah. the magnitude. Cyprus just can't so cope. Cyprus is only so big. It only has so many goats. <laughs> it can only produce so much halloumi. And China is buying all of it. And so why is China buying spike. it all? Well, you'll have to listen to her interview, which we'll link in the show notes. We actually spoke to her instead about an arguably more important phenomenon, which is China. Is there a more important phenomenon? I know that's difficult to believe. I know that is difficult to believe. But we spoke instead about China's Belt and Road Initiative. One Belt, One Road, Obor. One Belt, One Road, Obor, which is China's attempt to kind of compete with the United States. And the idea is to improve the trade and economic links between countries in Asia and Europe and Africa across these two sort of major channels, the belt and the road. Yeah. But anyway, she explains it a lot better than I do. So let's leave it to her. But who did you speak to this week? This week, I spoke to Matthew Goodwin, who is a professor of politics at Kent University and an associate fellow here at Chatham House, about his new book, which he co-authored with Roger Eatwell, called National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. We talked about the rise of populism, 
engaging in different debates because uh, his argument is often that people who voted for Trump or Brexit are being ignored by centre parties and the political elites can't sit there and just be snobbish and try and ignore some of the more difficult questions raised. So, yeah, it was an interesting discussion. I think uh, he would agree with me that him and I disagree on quite a lot of things, but it meant that it was it was an interesting chat. Yeah, so let's have a listen. Okay, so I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Yu Jie, who is the China Research Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House and is new. And so welcome to Chatham House. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Ben. I'm delighted to be here. So your work focuses on China's foreign and economic policy. And today we're going to take a deep dive into China's Belt and Road Initiative. Absolutely. We are trying to do a little bit explainer on what Belt and Road is and how that going to impact you. And there's a lot to talk about. But I just wondered whether we could start off incredibly sort of in broad terms Mm. and just start by thinking about China's sort of standing in the world. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that China is portrayed as a kind of global superpower and as the kind of major challenger to US supremacy in the world. Do you think that's an accurate portrayal? Well, externally, it is indeed an accurate portrayal because this is a country, the so-called Middle Kingdom, with 0.3 billion population and took over one-fifth of the world geographic areas. Mm. So by the sheer size, China looks like a superpower in itself. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, as you said, as you point out, China has a completely different political system. And such a political system has posed a very clear danger to the liberal democracy. And if we're talking about the end of history moment, and China has been the exception of that end of history moment. Okay, and so what is it about the political system that really marks that departure? What, how do they do things differently? It is a country run by one single ruling party, which is the Chinese Communist Party. And this is the party which is about to celebrate its 100 years anniversary. Wow. Which is different from the Soviet Communist Party. It lasted only for about 90 years. A lot of um, politicians, a lot of analysts has been questioned the reason for the longevity of the Chinese Communist Party and also the resi- the reasons for that sense of resilience, why it make the particular Chinese Communist Party lasted for so long. And especially imagine if we're considering China, China and Chinese history, this is the country where it has suffered from a lot of changes and disruption historically in the past 200 years and how to make this party work and survive and to justify itself to run the country without election. And this seems to be a mystery from the outside. And and how have they done that? How have they managed to sort of organise so many people across mm. such a massive geographic area? What is the structure of it? Put in a simple term in here, if we could draw a, a social contract. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese Communist Party signed up a social contract with its own population by simply providing... Uh, economic, a level of economic security, a level of reasonable income on the one hand, and then you will work work for the party, work for your employer. But well, on the other hand, carve your hand 
in terms of expressing yourself, in terms of uh, political liberty. So it's that sense of very strange social contract they have between the party and its own population. And so the present leader of China, President Xi Jinping, um, has been in power now for, for some years. Has his administration kind of marked a departure from previous policy? Or has he, has he kind of stayed relatively true to the kind of communist principles in terms of governing? There's no straight answer for this. <laughs> I think it's all very fluid because okay. things changed so quickly in the past 18 months or so. But the fundamental has not changed is the success or failure of President Xi will be judged by how well he managed the economy of China. Right. That's one thing which has not changed. But what has changed is the China's Commerce Party seems to transform itself from this, everything is run by a team of seven based on consensual politics into some kind of decision made by President Xi himself. He seems to have far more power than the other six members of the Politburo of the Standing Committee. That is only the impression. That is Mm. only the seemingly powerful image we have. But how much power he really has within himself, we're not sure and we don't know. So that really remains as a black box for any keen China watchers to see years to come. Okay, right, right, absolutely. And what has been his main economic policies that he's kind of adopted, thinking about China kind of globally in terms of trade? and Two things. Um, the first policy he adopted is to try to intend to change China from a manufacturing-oriented economy mm-hmm. with strong labor intensity, low-cost manufacturing products, and transport China into a high-end manufacturing economy. Mm. And how successful that will be, how successful that transformation will be, we don't know yet given the ongoing U.S.-China trade war, because essentially what Trump's administration after is after China's high technology development. That's one thing. And the second policy President Xi put forward to is on this so-called Belt and Road Initiative, right. started from September 2013. This is an initiative that inspired, got inspiration from the ancient Silk Road. So essentially, the Belt and Road, it is to create are two trade routes. The first route is the land route, which is the the Silk Road economic belt to mm-hmm. connect between China, Central Asia, and most of the Europe. The second route is the maritime Silk Road, which is to connect China with Southeast Asia, South Asia, Middle East, and Africa. So very much a go around the world and include over 88 countries and cover more than 60% of the world national GDP. So wow. it seems to be quite an ambitious undertaking. Yeah. Yes. How exactly do they envisage it working? What does China put into this system? Essentially, um, what China is trying to do is trying to use its enormous financial resource mm. to exert political influence into its neighboring countries to make the neighboring countries develop that sense of interdependence towards the Chinese economy. And therefore, China could adding the political influence into it. It's very Mm. similar to Marshall Plan, but it's not exactly about Marshall Plan because Marshall Plan is talk about shared and common values. Yep, the global common values of liberal democracy. Right. Whereas in China, the emphasis is on 
shared common economic interests. So that's the fundamental differences between Marshall Plan on the one hand and then the Belt and Road Initiative on the other. Okay, so it's so yeah, that's that's really interesting. So it's almost a kind of no strings attached as long as it suits the two countries economically. No string attached and no interference of domestic affairs of another country, right. which is one of the fundamental principles okay. of the Chinese foreign policy. But I think sooner or later, China will have to realize it need to have some string attached in order to make sure the initiative comes into a full success. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, what's what's in it for China to do this? I mean, you say they already mm-hmm. have like sort of unparalleled kind of financial resource outside of the US. Mm-hmm. What do they stand to gain beyond just kind of making more money? Two key things in here. While we're talking about China, we can't separate domestic politics and foreign affairs. So when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative, it is part of the domestic affairs, it's part of domestic economic reform, try to address that imbalance between the coastal provinces, the rich provinces in the, in the south on the one hand, and together with the poorer inland provinces in the western borders of China mm-hmm. on the other. So it's since trying to address economic uh, regional imbalance on the one hand. And secondly, it is also a plan for the Chinese companies looking for a much bigger global market. And essentially, this is the uh, upgrade of the Go Global strategy China's government has put into back to the early 21st century. Right. Okay. And and so you say that it um, it really sort of kicked off in 2013. Is it too soon to tell whether or not it's working? Or do we do we know? Do we have a sense? Well, I mean, five years on, the entire initiative runs high and low. And they're not just rich returns being included, but also major risks has been exposed in here. Mm. And I think part of the reason why there's so many risks has been exposed is the Chinese stakeholders, irrespective is the Chinese company or the Chinese government or the Chinese banks, they don't know their investing destination well enough mm. in order to make a proper judgment on what kind of investment is good investment and how are we going to calculate the return on investment. And also, it is only one Chinese bank financing the entire gigantic project, right. or China would prefer to have co-financing, collaborate with a second country on the third party, mm-hmm. collaborating with another country in another foreign land. So the Chinese itself has not really had a very clear idea how are they going to develop this uh, initiative further. So putting that way, the entire running order of the Belt and Road Initiative is very similar to the running order of the Deng Xiaoping's idea of economic reform, touching the stone while crossing the river, you learn it by doing it. Oh. So that is very much fluid in nature okay. and opaque in implementation plan. And also, if you ask me if there's any roadmap for the Belt and Road Initiative, there is no roadmap as such. Could you maybe give us an example of the sort of infrastructure like major development projects that that China is funding through the Belt and Road Initiative, have they been sort of universally sort of welcomed in countries or have they also had their downsides? Well, certainly they have not been universally welcomed. As we said, it involved involve more than 88 countries. Hmm. So you have good, bad and evil. 
Now, the one I like to give one positive example and one negative example. The positive example is the Chinese involvement in the Greek port, Perseus port. It's the port bought by the Chinese state-owned enterprises, Costco, China Ocean Shipping Company. And they bought in a time of Greek uh, Eurozone, Euro debt crisis. Yeah. And then obviously the Chinese took over the port and built the infrastructure and built the shipyard. And nowadays that port is very much being used by many European customers as well as the Chinese customers, one way or another. I mean, I'm talking about all the shipping companies because, I mean, Greece has a, traditionally has a very strong shipping industry. So that is one positive example of using the Belt and Road finance loans mm. in order to build the um, infrastructure. But we also have a negative example, like what's happening in Pakistan. So China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, it is one of the, probably the most important project for the Belt and Road Initiative. Right. But however, given the rampant corruption inside of Pakistan, but also given the mishandling from the Chinese side, on the project, on the electricity power plants, mm. on the dams, and also on Pakistan electricity national grid. And all these projects has not really been est- well established. And the local population has somehow bred that sense of very strong resentment to fight against and welcome the Chinese involvement in the China-Pakistan uh, economic corridor. And we don't know when and where this project is going to be ended. But certainly, um, the new Pakistan prime minister decided to take the IMF for another bailout. So the Chinese stake, stake are extremely high, and so is the Pakistan. But at the end of the day, the ordinary population have not really been benefit from. China is not surrounded by countries that have always had lovely relations with it, right? I was just wondering whether we've seen in the in these five years a lot of countries who sort of historically have had sort of security tensions with China shelving those fears sort of in favour of the cash. Is that something that we've seen? Have, like I don't know, with India or maybe some of the Southeast Asian countries? Interestingly, you said that um, China share a border with 17 different countries. And China has border issues with 15 of them. <laughs> so that is already showed you the security complexity on this about an initiative around these neighboring countries. The tendency we have seen so far is countries like Pakistan or Sri Lanka, which desperately does need the Chinese financial resources or whatever the financial resources they can have. On the one hand, this is the, el- the elite level, mm-hmm. which are very much satisfied with their engagement with China. But then on the other hand, you, we also have the grassroots level of population when they come to realize the Chinese investment in their hinterland is not exactly make sure their life get improved or get better, but instead it's only the rich and famous got benefit. So mm. we are entering that classic upstairs and downstairs scenario when they try to develop the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think in the next five years, if China wants to make its Belt and Road works better, and you need to think about very carefully if a project or a infrastructure, longer-term establishment, is going to bring the benefit for the local indigenous population. I think ultimately 
that is the question that we have to answer. And ultimately, if we judge the success of the Belt and Road, if China would like to project its soft power, mm. putting that term, yeah, and they have to make sure it works for the masses, yeah. not for the few. So it's almost like a, an extension of the social contract that you mentioned at the start, <laughs> but, but beyond their own citizens. <laughs> exactly. The problem is that social contract wor- worked for China mm. because China generally see in the past forty years. Developing social uh, that social contract the infrastructure is a panacea right. for its own economic miracle, but whether that panacea is a really a recipe for success or more likely a recipe for disaster, we don't know because mm. each of the seventeen countries bordered with China has different security need, economic wants, and financial structure, mm. and there's no really a standard formula. For engaging with all those countries, yeah. So much research work really needed to be honest on what China can do, but more importantly, what China cannot do on this Belt and Road Initiative. It seems now we have that tendency of the Chinese foreign policy, Chinese foreign economic policy is equivalent to the Belt and Road Initiative, but I think that assumption is wrong. One of the early kind of PR stunts, the kind、yep. of first time that we really felt the Belt and Road Initiative in Europe was this sort of image of the freight train arriving in London, ultimately, but from Duisburg in Germany, but then sort of originally from from China itself,、mm-hmm. this、mm-hmm. continuous rail line taking goods all the way. Do you think that the way do you, do you think that Europe has responded? Sort of sensibly to the Belt and Road Initiative, they, do, have they kind of embraced it, or do you think they should embrace it more, or do you think it should be something that they kind of fear? Obviously, you have EU twenty seven, and as you know, to achieve a consensus among EU seven is almost like a mission impossible on many fronts, <laughs> including the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, that train is actually running from my hometown Chongqing in the southwest of okay, China,、cool. uh, through Duisburg, and then finally arrived to London. So. But the entire、um, the railway started well before the Belt and Road Initiative. Is China realizes, as you said, is a very good PR stint, and therefore putting this China Europe Rail Expressway as the、um, as a, as a showcase for、mm. the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, for Europe, the question come as, what does Europe need from China? You have European twenty seven member states. There are some rich countries like France or Germany. Which so well advanced compared、yeah. with countries like Italy, Spain, and Portugal, and also you have Central and Eastern European countries who also have a different needs and wants from China.、Mm. So at the end of the day, to have EU twenty seven agree on how they should trade Belt and Road Initiative, it is very difficult. So what I've witnessed so far, it seems to be countries with poor financial、uh, infrastructure, with a poor economy. Countries like Italy, Spain, and Portugal seems embracing the Belt and Road Initiative very positively, and the Central and Eastern European countries they are kind of ambivalent. So、yes. Hungary has been the case of very pro-China on the one hand, and then Poland has been another country keep neutral terms. The reason is because depends how easy the those Central and Eastern European countries would be able to receive the fund from the European Union. Right and European Commission, so the easier to be able to receive the fund on infrastructure from Brussels, and then less likely they will rely on the Chinese money. 
because I'm sure those government would fully aware when they sign up with the Chinese government on the Belt and Road Initiative, they have to know what they have signed for. Yeah, it is a forced impact, and you exchange money for your soul. In a way. Well, that's uh, comforting. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the scenario where we are now, and these are the the second type of country. Now, the last type of country is country like Germany and France, which are vehemently defend against the Belt and Road Initiative because they simply do not see much benefit mm. they can get from this initiative, apart from itself being a vehicle to satisfy China's global ambition. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on global ambitions, I just wondered if I could sort of end by asking you a question about the United States. Obviously, a major story then in the last year or two has been President Trump's interesting economic policies towards towards China in trade terms with his kind of trade war, as it's been styled. How have the effects of Trump's trade war been felt in China? And can China win that? I would like to draw, uh, John Manikin said, in long run, we will die. So in this trade war, no one is a winner because... The U.S.-China trade war, it is not just a trade war between two countries. It's a disruption against global supply chain. Mm. Imagine China has been the manufacturing hub in in East Asia in the last 20 years at least. And then all these manufacturing hubs have been so well established, including infrastructure, include the skilled labor forces. And then if the foreign companies, the U.S. companies or European companies want to shifting the production line out of China, they need to looking for a much bigger uh, infrastructure and trading hubs. And now the question is, who will be the next China? Where are we looking for that infrastructure hubs for those American and European companies? The answer is we were unlikely to have a good answer in the short term. Yeah. So that's the global supply chain disruption on the economic level. Now, on the political level, that is not a usual trade war between the two countries. That is, this is the war which United States use as a vehicle to stop China's unstable rise. This is the last opportunity in the eyes of Washington, D.C. to stop China's unstable rise. And so do you think that's driven... I mean, some people have seen it as a kind of departure that that the president himself has kind of pursued, but do you think it's actually relatively conventional thinking in Washington in those senses, in a sort of grand geopolitical... It is not conventional thinking. I think it's, uh, it's a fault from the both sides. So right. initially, the whole idea is of engage with China since 1979, mm. when the two countries established formal diplomatic relation, it is all about by using economic engagement with China, and China will be more like us like liberal democracy, right. but by no way China's political system, as I said earlier, would be look like liberal democracy by any standard. But then on the other hand, China's economy just grown, grow as faster as ever. Yeah. So the American realized, okay, all engagement strategy has, has largely failed, and therefore we should change from engagement into containment. So that seems to be a bipartisan consensus between both Republicans and Democrats. This is now the time to contend China, and we need to have a strategic reset between Beijing and Washington. Okay, well, 
I hope to have you back on the podcast to talk about whether we see this strategic reset. Definitely. That would be good. More than happy to. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. So I'm here to speak to Matthew Goodwin, who is many things, an associate fellow of Chatham House, a professor, but also the joint author with Roger Eatwell of a new book called National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, published by Penguin. Thanks so much for coming in, man. Thanks for having me. Why did you write this book then? It doesn't seem very topical. So we wrote the book between the vote for Brexit and the vote for Trump. And we were both frustrated that the public debate was going wrong in a number of areas, that we were latching on to stereotypes that were very misleading. For example, the idea that it's mainly about old white guys. and what, What's mainly about populism? National populism, that Trump, Brexit, Salvini, Le Pen is principally about a kind of old white male revolt. Or... Particularly on the left, it's mainly a response to the refugee crisis and the Great Recession, which we're not saying is not important, but we're just saying in relative to other things, it's it's not the primary driver. And other arguments, you know, around uh, the role of big tech and social media, and generally, I think a debate that has been consumed or obsessed with short-term factors and has lost sight of actually how the deeper currents are changing our political systems from below. And so we said, well, let's write a book and try and write a book that is not just for nerdy academics, but hopefully one that is of interest to the public debate. And that's that's how we went about doing it and almost almost killed each other in the process. But that's another story. Mm-hmm. Okay, what, what, I mean, why? Just as an aside. I think because academics uh, argue over everything, but the big debate in this area is, I mean, it's a simplistic debate, but it's, is this all about economics or is it all about culture? Yeah. And basically, if you, if you lean instinctively left, you basically think usually it's mainly economics. And if you lean right, it's mainly culture. And within that, it's mainly immigration. And the social sciences has set up that debate too. So we now have studies that are basically, it's the economy stupid, mm-hmm. or studies that say it's principally about migration uh, and ethnic change and how people feel about that. We try and sort of tread a middle way in saying that actually there are these four currents that are creating a lot of room for national populism. And actually one of those specifically relates to economics, that it is this sense that it's not so much about objective economic deprivation like um, stagnating wages, um, falling GDP, economic recessions. That stuff is important, but actually we argue what's more important than that is a sense of relative deprivation, that it is about a sense of cultural and economic and social loss, uh, often held by people who are working full-time, but often in crappy jobs, you know, that, that aren't giving them a sense of dignity. And we don't talk enough about dignity in politics, and I think that's where the economic stuff really matters, in that if you look at who's voting for Trump, you look at who's voting for Salvini in Italy or Le Pen in France, these are usually skilled, semi-skilled workers, often in pretty know full-time jobs but those jobs are not giving them the same sense of recognition and dignity that perhaps they had in earlier years now there's a whole host you know there's we also talk about you know the role of migration and ethnic change and 
uh, the way in which the relationship between voters and the mainstream parties is, is becoming much weaker than it was in earlier decades. But I think this economics versus culture debate is incredibly misleading and it's and it's got all of us wasting a lot of our time because you know the real world doesn't work like that we need to think about how they interact so if we use brexit as an example obviously there are lots of other, as you mentioned lots of other things going on in the world where this is sort of relevant so why do you think that brexit do you think brexit is a populist movement i don't think brexit is exclusively a populist movement but i think it's got some pretty big overlaps with national populism so if you were to look at it just in terms of numbers then around 70% of leavers had voted for the UK Independence Party in the past or had said that they would consider doing so. Now, that still leaves about 30% beyond the kind of Nigel Farage populist element that actively was not up for the whole populism thing but was still nonetheless drawn to this this case uh, for leaving the European Union. And I think, you know, every every one of these movements, you know, you can't understand Trump without understanding America's long tradition of populism, going back to Andrew Jackson, Huey Long, Pat Buchanan, um, Barry Goldwater, in the same way that you can't understand Brexit without understanding Britain's tradition of Euroscepticism. And that has partly been a mainstream tradition that's come through the Conservative Party and at times in the 70s and the 80s, the Labour Party. So I don't view Brexit as being principally a sort of outsider populist moment, but it has latched onto and I think benefited from the the arrival of of national populism, particularly in the form of the UK Independence Party, which, you know, in all those areas that had voted UKIP previously, they were usually off the charts for leave. So I think they worked in tandem. And I think that is partly what helped leave cross the line that you had the kind of blue-collar Labour areas that had voted for the UK Independence Party in the past with your more true-blue traditional Conservatives who basically looked at Farage and said, oh, he's a bit of a spiv, and P.S., if I have a UKIP MP, that will probably hurt my property prices. And I think, you know, the Boris Johnson-Farage element, I think that alliance of sorts really helped helped them nudge over 52%. And obviously... Brexit wasn't all about immigration, but immigration was used quite heavily by the Leave campaign. Do you think that's a big part of UK national populism, the fear, of, the worry around immigration? Yeah, I think immigration was uh, one of the two core drivers of the Leave vote. So since the referendum, we've had about 12 academic studies of why people voted Leave, and they variously ask people to basically tick a box on a survey or mm. they've asked people to say in your own words why did you vote leave and remain and those studies all basically paint the same story which is that for leavers it was first and foremost this attempt to reclaim sovereignty and we can all have issues with how that was defined but it was a sense that actually i want more influence and control taken um, away from the european court of justice and from the eu and put back into domestic institutions But secondly, it was a very clear desire to lower overall levels of migration. And wrapped up within that, for some voters, it was clearly partly wrapped up with this notion that immigration was seen to be negatively affecting Britain's economy or national culture and the welfare state. So those two drivers, sovereignty and immigration, uh, run through pretty much every study we've got. YouGov, Lord Ashcroft... um, my work, uh, British election study and others. 
Uh, and I think that also partly explains why we've not seen any fundamental changing of minds since the referendum in that we we've sort of got into this position where you know none of those core concerns really are going to be resolved and because i don't want to get into a brexit debate no we've all done that too much but so and i think part of your work for quite a long time has been about the fact that these concerns have not previously been listened to by governing parties and should be acknowledged is that fair i think i think it's fair to say that that we go so i think roger and i would say we we are quite different from some of the other books that have come out in the last two years which are mainly preoccupied with showing or drawing attention to the threat of populism and the way in which support for democracy is supposedly collapsing and it is a kind of catastrophizing within the literature I personally don't think the evidence backs that up, that if you look at how people feel about democracy, how people feel about core fundamental aspects of modern liberal life, same-sex marriage, relationships between different racial, ethnic groups, LGBT rights, um, that liberals forget their achievements, that they've achieved a lot. But I think uh, along the way, while catastrophizing everything, we, we have... A little, a little bit. I think we've lost we've lost sight of the fact that some of the grievances that are behind these movements um, are not irrational and are actually perfectly legitimate. And this is a bit where I think, you know, rightly so, we're having a debate about well, you know, to what extent is concern over immigration about racism? Um, to what extent are these voters you know, right or wrong to be? advocating a conception of democracy that puts the majority against minorities, for example, through referenda. Um, and those are debates that we should be having. Um, but we should also be having debates about things like why are our political systems becoming less and less representative of key groups? So more women and ethnic minorities are in legislatures. That should be celebrated. It should be, um, it's a major achievement. Looking at the midterms, for example, more evidence of that, which is great. But regardless of gender, we have uh, record low numbers of non-graduates and blue-collar workers, or working class, lower middle class people in politics and in media. I think that's a problem because we need to ensure that we have that pluralistic heart uh, within our, within our uh, societies where we've got these different perspectives from all walks of life. Um, and the groups that are most likely to vote for national populists feel that they are not, they do not have a seat at the table. And unless we address that, then these movements won't go away. And on the economic front, while we're there, a lot of these groups have very, very good reason to feel that the economic system hasn't delivered for them. Can I just interject on that one? I mean, if you're, I mean, you could look at the states, if you're an African-American living in Detroit, would you say that the economic system's working for them? Probably not. They didn't vote for Trump. You know, and this idea that we need to... You know, I do understand your point about this. There's this group that have, you know, feel underrepresented and, and are underrepresented, and they're the ones who are voting for these large groups. But, you know, in the UK, what about the real concerns of non white working class people? Yeah, well, I think the. I used to live in Detroit as a side note, um, and there's absolutely no doubt that it's fallen through the cracks. In the US, uh, economic hardship was a stronger predictor of support for Clinton than mm-hmm. it was for Trump, but a sense of relative loss 
that the settlement has not worked out for either myself or my group was a bigger predictor of support for Trump, not Clinton. Mm -hmm. And so I think where I would be slightly wary is of kind of trying to draw racial or ethnic distinctions within social class um, because I think that if you look, for example, at how minorities are voting in the UK, for example, voting Labour or voting Democrat in the in the US, that is well documented. It's a process that was probably going to increase in, in, in future years. But we also have groups, other groups that are now abandoning their traditional political home of choice because they feel that as we have focused on some groups within society, we've lost sight of others. But I think also... We focus relentlessly on perhaps telling a story about what differentiates everybody rather than what brings everybody together. And I think that is given by accident, or maybe not accident, but it's given populists a much stronger card to play because they are now able to define that we in a very narrow, often ethnic sense. Mm. Whereas the mainstream, my frustration with my friends in mainstream parties is that they've lost sight of defining the we in a more inclusive sense and so this is where we start venturing into you know the debates over you know sort of the evolution of left-wing politics and identity politics and the extent to which that has exacerbated some of the political challenges that we're going to live through for quite a while but i mean popular national populism is identity politics isn't it I think I would argue that, to some extent, you could argue it is. Um, but I think I would argue that it is wrongly, but it is uh, defining, trying to define what it means to be part of the national community. Mm-hmm. Now, it's trying to do that typically on the basis of what what is the ethno-cultural majority and are you in it or are you not in it? I think... Uh, those who are trying to oppose national populism have become a little bit unstuck because they aren't really talking so much about who is or who is not in the community um, so much as uh, why we should talk endlessly about why somebody is different from somebody else within that community. And the consequence of that, my worry, will be that overall we're just corroding trust in one another Um, And when we corrode trust, we will realise that public support for other things that, ironically, people on the left hold very dear, like the welfare state, will corrode. And people will not be willing to give taxation and resources into the pot if they perceive or they they feel that they're being constantly told about how different everybody else is from them. And this is, you know, the diversity solidarity paradox that I think has run through much of our political debate over the last 20 years. And I think will will become much louder unless we can get back to the more interesting conversation about how can we now start drawing together common unifying threads. But I mean, those were the arguments that were used by Trump, who won. And, you know, by, which arguments? Though? Sorry, the, the sort of um, beware of the other. But he was that was in a very crude, populist, a- irresponsible, it, absolutely it was sometimes racist uh, way. Yeah. And what what I'm saying is, so the counterpoint to Trump, sorry, but the counterpoint to Trump from Clinton was not, I am not this person, I want to talk about a national story. It was, 
here is a list of reasons as to why all of these groups are different. Mm -hmm. And that is that was a problem. Yeah. I just, I mean, because the other thing I was going to say was that some and a noisy bit of the Leave campaign did something similar. And actually, for a long time, I think, you know, one can argue that the groups who voted, who 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 felt underrepresented, who feel underrepresented, and for whom these two examples are slightly a kick up to the system, it's because they have been ignored. But we're now in a situation where they're not being ignored. They are actually leading the agenda, really. Well, and I would so, say the their so, claimed representatives are leading the yes. agenda. In that I would not view Boris Johnson, Michael Gove or Donald Trump as being truly representative of the voters. Okay. Yeah, fair point. But where does that leave, for, for example, in the UK, you know, the three million EU citizens who may have been previously perceived to be part of the elite, but where where, where is their representation now? You know, it's just sort of swinging either way, isn't it? Um, well, I think that, I mean, the EU citizens' rights issue, I, I, I think that's... Well, it was one of the first things to be resolved, and I think that will be. I mean, that is not the point of disagreement. It's a side point, but I mean, that's not what people are disagreeing about with the withdrawal agreement. I think everyone's on board with. No, but I just mean they that are. Issue. They, that's many of those people have lived in Britain for twenty-five years yeah. and count themselves as British, but they're not in this situation. I'm not sort of talking about the technicalities. I just mean, where's that, you know, who's talking about them, really? Well, I mean, I, the fact that they have a very important role within British society is reflected in the fact that they were one of the first issues to be resolved in the negotiation. I don't think, it's not as if there's a marginalised group that isn't being listened to. I mean, we have a government that's not willing to entertain the idea of giving EU nationals who have contributed and who have been here for years. You know, look at the, the most interesting part story about Britain for me in the last five years has been the Windrush story in terms of the public outrage at how British citizens were treated during that process. And I think that while it was tempting to say that this was, you know, an outburst of um, a home office, hostile environment, you know, racist, poor uh, bureaucratic management, and it was partly a, a lot of those things, among ordinary voters, there was a very strong sense that actually these people have been treated very unfairly and that they were integral to the national community into the national story and that comes back to my point which is but sorry i think they're an exception right because i agree with you and i think you know all the newspapers were united Mm. no newspaper came out saying yeah this is fine Mm. but i feel like they are potentially the last generation Mm. where that will be the case i mean i'm not sure that would happen in 10 years time about polish people who came over 10 years ago well we're having a big very vigorous debate about how we can extend and support rights for transsexual communities, which we wouldn't have had 10 years ago. I think the debate will move on. That's not, I think that's, other... that's not the same, though, as a debate around immigration. Well, we might have the same debate about EU nationals who have contributed to local communities and will the new skill uh, points-based system penalise people that we perceive to be important contributors? You know, we don't know where the debate's going to go, but I'm, I, the fundamentals to me are pretty clear. I mean, uh, racism... Um, is in decline across most Western states, North America and Europe. It doesn't feel like it is sometimes, but most indicators that we have would suggest it is. Um, what, are you, the, what are the indicators? Like well, how so does if, one if you measure look, If you look at the United States, for, yeah. for argument's sake, in 1955, 90% plus of, of US citizens disapproved of the idea of interracial marriage, that they would... They, come, they openly said to survey researchers... I would not be happy if my son or daughter brought home somebody from a different 
racial ethnic group to that to to to, to our house. Um, today, ninety percent plus approve of inter uh, racial marriage. Or say marriage. they do. Well, the fact that it's also increasing year on year, and that we have a growing percentage of the U.S. population and also the U.K. population, and that if you look at where Europe's going to be in two thousand one hundred. You know, mixed race will be a much larger share of the overall population. So people are building these relationships and these links. So I'm not of the school that obviously I'm not somebody who thinks, you know, again, that you know, there's been this explosion of racism and that is what is behind national populism because I do think that um, we have to get past this idea. Uh, and, you know, people are right to be anxious about what is happening, obviously. And it's easy for, you know, somebody in my position to make these points. But we do have to get past this framing uh, of everybody who votes for these movements being an irrational or vicious racist. Absolutely. And, and I think and there if are... we can, then we collectively get into a much more important place in terms of how you can respond to it and deal with it. And I think there are lots of people who voted for Brexit who are in no way racist, no question about it. Um, I think... The thing to say about that briefly is that the acceptance for public racism is has got smaller, so people are less likely to say explicitly that they don't agree with something, but they might have attitudes that that are different to that. And also, this idea that it, I'm not I'm not sure I agree with that. Really, I in mean, a if survey, we're, if we're going, do you if think we're going into sort of you know unconscious bias and a lot of this? No, stuff, not even but, that. I just mean in a survey, if somebody went, "Would you be happy if your daughter brought home yeah. somebody who was not white?" And it was said to you, hmm. people would be like, "No, of course that's fine." Well, we whether, have, whether or not they actually sure. said, you know, think. I mean, that. we have social desirability bias, and yeah. we know that it's there. But I don't think that it's anywhere near the extent that it would need to be in order for for these measures to be somewhat consistent with the rise of these movements. I mean, we know that we have just simply by the fact that we have more mixed relationships, more mixing, more more uh, group contact. Yeah. But yeah. but there is still xenophobia and, and there are still misperceptions about the issues of immigration and minorities. And we know, as Ipsos Mori and others have shown, that people vastly exaggerate or overstate the percentage share that is from a different background or the overall level of immigration. And there are perception issues that need to be challenged and the media's got a role in that. But also that we are left with this uncomfortable point, which is where I tend to get a lot of criticism, which is that it is entirely valid to feel that the pace of change, not so much the nature of change, but the pace of change is wholly at odds with what is comfortable. Yes. And that's a discussion, you know, that we need to have. It is. But that what is that group? Is that group white working class Brits? Well, no, I mean, I, it's clearly not structured clearly along the lines of ethnicity and race as reflected in the fact that you know one in three Lee voters were black and minority ethnic um, one in three Latino Hispanic voters opted for Trump that social conservatism as a construct isn't constricted by race and ethnicity it is something that runs across all groups I mean if I you know point we make in the book which is that you know if you have somebody like Marine Le Pen winning over as many young women as young men at the election last year, um, not all of whom were, you know, in manual occupations, but often low-skilled service sector jobs, um, or that she was winning over 
um, about 20% of her support came from voters who were pro-LGBT, but also at the same time anxious over the issue of Islam and the extent to which Islam can accommodate itself with modern liberal society, then we are entering into a space that is one where you, you, know, you cannot simply say, well, you know, this is about the white working class and their problems with integration and diversity, that actually we are seeing voters now wanting to debate and discuss issues that we haven't generally done a very good job of discussing. Uh, women's rights, for example, within the context of Islam is an issue that will become increasingly dominant in European politics. Now, it's an uncomfortable issue. It's a delicate, sensitive issue. I sat on the government's working group uh, for anti-Muslim hatred, and even on that, even in that context, in a supported, facilitated platform with community leaders, there were still discussions and debates that you couldn't really go near. Mm. Now, my frustration with the debate and some of the things, you know, for example, recently that I've been trying to do, the only people that are talking about those issues, basically the Express and Tommy Robinson. Right. So yeah. those are the people having those discussions and those discussions are happening. You spend five minutes on YouTube, as you know, like those discussions are happening. So can the mainstream reclaim some of that space and get past this rather unhelpful reaction of, well, if we just talk about this, it's racism or it's racism or you're normalizing the language of hate by asking these questions. If we can't even discuss the issues, then it's as far as I'm concerned, you know, you might as well hand national populism a, a, a canister of uh, gasoline and, and just say hey you know um keep on going and i think that's the issue and we've just got into such a we unhelped i mean it came from good intentions we were trying to make society better and we were trying to deal with groups that needed better representation and needed rights cemented but we along the way have somehow somehow got ourselves into the position where we've actively fueled movements that are quite openly exclusionary you know look at that there's one study that we cite which shows that you know if you remind americans about the fact that you know there is a an, a, a thing called political correctness that there are you know what would psychologists would call restrictive communication norms that you there are things you're not really supposed to talk about they become more supportive of donald trump right through that experimental setting because they feel as though there are these issues that are perfectly legit, perfectly legitimate to talk about, so long as they don't veer into xenophobia and racism. And when they do, that should be called out. But we have to ensure that these vehicles do not become the home of people who feel that mainstream society isn't even interested in talking about these issues. Okay, so we need to engage more. We need to not be scared to in have a facilitated environment. Yeah, just we're not be scared to have. Potentially difficult conversations. What comes next? Like, what are the policies or what are the, you know, because I'm all for discussion, mm. but um, there has to be a point to it, doesn't there? So what think, do you want to see happening? Yeah, so my first point would be empathy on both sides. That if we want to try, so what the one thing that one of the arguments we make in the book certainly is um, that we do have these value conflicts that are now sweeping through many of our societies and they are unlikely to disappear in our lifetimes and you know populists will lose some elections and liberal progressives will win some and then it will probably tilt back the other way and we'll kind of carry on in this kind of in this general direction of travel um so the the question is you know how do you begin to close some of these value conflicts and and for me i think 
there's a lot of interesting research in psychology about trying to promote empathy and understanding of different perspectives rather than just um, responding to somebody and giving them everything they want. We can actually instead think about, well, what would you, how could you build mechanisms or arenas where, for argument's sake, you know, you're a Remainer and I'm a Lever, even though that's not necessarily, that might not be true, but how can we build mechanisms where you and I can at least have a greater sense of empathy and understanding? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm interested in. That's where we need to be um, rather than, well, you know, you just get everything you want or I get everything I want. And that's a recipe for polarization. And uh, I think the only way that's going to happen is if it's grassroots led. I mean, I was interested that Gordon Brown, I think yesterday or the day before, came out with this proposal that actually in the UK we should have a royal commission that is region based, uh, you know, that, that, that has region focused citizen deliberation initiatives and they are facilitated and they're moderated and the whole uh, premise would be to try and at least as a first step promote some empathy and understanding between those communities. Um, I think that's a really looking at Ireland, for example, and how they've managed very sensitive issues. That is one possible uh, way forward. And people might rightly say, well, Matt, that's all a bit naive. You're going to bring everyone together and they'll shout at each other. Maybe so. But I think uh, anything's going to be better than what we've got at the moment. And then longer term, it is about a policy agenda. It's about revitalizing massive economic imbalance. It's about dealing with questions like how can we reform immigration but make it progressive in the same way at mm-hmm. the same time? So you can change. I mean, you know, we've got gotten to this ridiculous oh, discussion no. in the UK where people say, you mean you want to reform immigration? You must be a racist. And actually, I think what the, the interesting approach would be to say, well, yeah, let's reform immigration, but let's do it in a way that prioritises the National Health Service, uh, social care, that is progressive and fair both to the UK and to the countries that are sending workers. Because to be frank, I don't personally think it's very progressive to be leaving states like Bulgaria and Poland and Hungary staring at uh, depopulation over the next 20, 30 years, which will completely devastate their social care and welfare systems. That's a question we've got to think about. But we're not really yet prepared to have that debate and discussion because it means that might conflict with some of our broader cosmopolitan ideals and then we end up having the whole thing shut down before we can talk about it. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Thanks for a very enlightening discussion. discussion And um, thanks for reading the book. you can read Matt's book, co-written with Roger Eatwell, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, available in all good bookshops now. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. And that's it for this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and subscribe um, on whatever channel you use to listen to your podcasts. Spotify. People are using much more now, interestingly. Mm. And follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. And as mentioned in the intro, this is the penultimate episode of season one. What? (laughs) So tune in in two weeks for the season one finale. (laughs) It's going to be bigger than Game of Thrones, people. It's going to be absolutely mental. Who have we got on, Agnes? Are you threatening a red wedding? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that means. I've not watched it. (laughs) And that's what, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. All right, well, in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Remsen, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Mm-hmm.